Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to discuss verses 1 through 14. And in this short section of Luke, we will see two parables on prayer. In our previous audio that covered Luke 17 verses 11 through 37, Jesus was talking about the suddenness of the coming of destruction on AD 70. He talked about Noah's flood coming suddenly. He talked about the judgment on Lot's widow at Sodom coming suddenly. He talked about the flashing of the lightning from the east to the west coming suddenly. So he's talking about what the disciples are going to, be have, to, are going to have to face before that momentous event in AD 70 when Jesus' murderers are punished by the coming of Jesus in judgment. And that is the perfect background for this chapter on prayer because he starts off in Luke 18 verse 1 saying this he then told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not become discouraged now why might the disciples become discouraged because before Jesus comes back and judges the persecuting rabbinic kingdom of the Jews Jesus told them they were going to be chased from synagogue to synagogue and some of them would be killed. He openly predicted that in several verses, which I don't have in front of me, but you know the verses. And so he knows that they're going to get discouraged in the midst of all this persecution. And so the answer to that discouragement is to pray always. Application time. In the United States of America, do you not get discouraged when you say something really radical like marriage is between a man and a woman? You're automatically condemned. You're disinvited from design conferences like the communications director of the Village Church in Dallas, Texas, I think it is, somewhere in Texas, got kicked off in the name of tolerance, booted because he believed this horrible, radical proposition that people who aren't men and women, that couples who are not, who do not consist of men and women should be married. So, and so he, and Chick-fil-A, they gave money one time to the to some Christian organizations not even connected with LGBTQ, LSMFT issues. And as a result, the city council at in San Antonio will not allow them to put a Chick-fil-A restaurant in the, re, in the airport there. So, yeah, there's persecution coming on the church in America, and I can't say that we don't deserve it, because in many cases we do deserve it, because we're compromised like crazy. How about Azusa Pacific Christian College? Just yesterday I read they no longer will allow counseling on the campus for Christians who have same-sex attraction to get rid of the same-sex attraction and to live a biblical godly lifestyle. Oh, no, we can't do that. We might lose our tax status and the federal government might call us a bunch of bigots and might not let us, not, 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 might not lend our students federal funds anymore. So we're just going to do away with that. And then... At that announcement, 200 of the good students at Azusa Pacific Christian College have a vigil praying for those poor homosexuals who might have felt unsafe because the college forbid sexual perversion on their campus. I I, I can't wait till they have a meeting of adulterers and and people practicing bestiality who who feel unsafe because the college banned those practices. Or or does the college ban those practices? They've thrown away the Bible. Who knows what's next? Anyway. This is the sort of environment we're living in now, and the answer to the inevitable discouragement is to pray always and don't become discouraged. Now, this section in Luke chapter 18 is a part of a long section of several chapters where Jesus is in Perea in his penultimate ministry before he goes down to, to Jerusalem to get crucified during Passion Week, and there are no parallel passages in all 
of the, in this long section. So we get a good lot of extra teaching in Luke that we don't get from the other Gospels here. Now let's go to Luke 18, verse 2 through 3, and we'll start with the two parables on prayer. Verse 2, there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect man. And a widow in that town kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Uh, so this judge didn't care about the needs of other people and didn't care what others thought about him. Now, interestingly enough, in this parable, that unjust judge represents God in the parable the widow who came asking for judgment is a weak person representing a Christian. She had no family to uphold her cause. Folks, when Christians are persecuted, they are weak. And that was the situation going to be facing the Christians soon. Now, if you have a problem with an unjust judge, a wicked judge, a nasty judge representing God the Father, remember, this is an a fortiori argument. The idea is if a lousy, stinking, unrighteous judge can give a can give relief to somebody who's weak and hurting, how much more so can God? The point of the parable is not that God is unjust. The point of the parable is, is that God answers importunate prayer. We can't make parables walk on all fours. This is a standard hermeneutical principle of interpretation. You have to go to the main point. We go to verses 4 through 7. For while he, the unjust judge, was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect man, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice, so she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay to help them? There's the a fortiori argument. Look, if the unjust judge is going to answer because he gets tired of being pestered by prayers... Well, how much more will God? He's not going to lay. So the point is here, pester God with your prayers. He doesn't mind. Pray, pray, and pray some more. Don't stop praying. Adam Clark points out, as I've mentioned earlier, that Jesus is particularly thinking of the trials the disciples are soon to face at the hand of the persecuting Jews. So when that persecution comes, Jesus says, pray, pray, don't stop praying. The fact that God says he will not delay means he doesn't have to be badgered as much as the unjust judge. So pray. He's more than willing to help his elect, his chosen people, chosen from the foundation of the world. Luke 18, 8. I tell you, Jesus is speaking now. I tell you, he says to his disciples, I tell you that he, God, will swiftly grant them justice. His elect will be granted justice. Remember that. That is a promise by our Lord and Savior that the elect will be granted justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find that faith on earth? Holman Christian Study Bible says that faith on earth. I think King James says will he find faith on earth. Now, this coming here I take to be AD 70, but we have a problem here because if, if it's AD 70, when it says will he find faith on earth, it sounds like the whole globe. So that makes it sound like the end of the world. I point out to you that the word earth is gase, which means earth or land. It is totally ambiguous as to which way you translate it. You can... Every time you see the word earth or land in any translation, you need to substitute back the other word, earth, the other word than the English translation you're using, because it can really affect the theology of the statement and it's a perfect of the of the verse, and it is perfectly legitimate to do that. I've gone through the lexicon and looked at all the the uses of the word gay and in the Septuagint and the Old Testament, and there's no question about it. Sometimes it means earth, and sometimes it means land, and sometimes you can't tell. Well, here, if you translate it this way, we will he find faith on the land? 
In other words, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith in the land of Israel that I'm about to judge by destroying Jerusalem and destroying the land of Israel by Roman troops marching all over the land and tearing it apart at that time? Will there be faith in the land of Israel? I've left you here to establish the church in the land of Israel. Will there be faith there? That's exactly what he's talking about in my humble opinion. Now, why would Jesus be warned about the faith of the church in that run-up period to 870? We'll see in the Olivet Discourse, in which he's talking about that very period, Matthew 24, 12 through 13, because lawlessness, lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered to the end of the, uh, till the uh, end of the rabbinic kingdom. Those who endure to the end will be delivered. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He knew that there was going to be persecution. People were going to get discouraged. And there's going to be apostasy, the great, so-called great apostasy. And I, again, I'm emphasize, I emphasize to you now that I am taking an orthodox preterist interpretation of the book of, 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 the, of the New Testament scriptures. It makes a whole lot of sense. It makes a lot of things make sense. And in fact, the context works good, too, because Jesus is talking to his disciples, preparing his disciples about persecution that they're going to have to face, not what that generation, at the, a certain generation at the end of the world is going to have to face, but what they, the addressees, are going to have to face. Now, I know that argument can be pushed sometimes too hard, but I think, in general, the balance of the equities is toward dealing with the audience that is being spoken to, and then make applications later on, if you will, but the, the, the direct references to the audience that's being spoken to. Now, John Gill agrees with what I just said. He gives the two options to translate gay, he says it can mean earth, and if it does mean earth, that means the coming at the end of the world. Jesus is coming at the end of the world. And if the word means land, if gay means land, that means the coming is at AD 70. So I translate it land because I think that's what it is, in my humble opinion. When the Son of Man comes, remember, Son of Man is a messianic term, and so he tends to use that term when he's talking about his coming in judgment. And there's that word coming, and when you see the word comes, it does not always mean second coming. That is a fallacy if some people believe that. It's not true. All you got to do is go look at the two words for coming, or two of the words for coming. And the words for coming that are generally used in the so-called apocalyptic passages of Scripture, and you will see that those Greek words sometimes just use, are used for coming in judgment, sometimes just used for coming through a door. It's not a technical end-of-the-world second coming word. We go now to the next parable on prayer. This is Luke 18, 9 through 14. I like these two parables on prayer because they're real easy to understand. They're very encouraging. Verse 9. He also told this parable. This is Jesus. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, self-righteous people, and looked down on everybody else. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, of course, a tax collector, there was nothing worse in the eyes of a Jew. They extorted taxes from the people. They were working for an oppressive foreign government. The Romans, who were oppressing the Jews and who were offending their religious sensibilities every chance they got. So, tax collectors were bad guys. The Pharisee, verse 11, the Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Now, fasting twice a week, that was not required in the law. The only time they were supposed to fast was on the Day of Atonement, as my NIV Study Bible points out. Fasting twice a week was not commanded in the Mosaic Law, as the NIV Study Bible points out. But nonetheless, 
The Pharisees added to their law, they're going to fast twice a week. He gives a tenth of everything I get. That is a, an Old Testament tithe that they're talking about, which we're not under now, by the way. We're just supposed to give joyously. But this Pharisee was under it, and he was talking about how he was keeping the law. He did good things. He gave all his money away. 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. Now, the tax collector didn't try to justify himself before God with his good works. He didn't have any good works. And guess what? Neither do you, and neither do I. Nobody's got good works to offer to God. Oh, I went to church every week, and I gave money to the offering plate, and I sang like a cherub. No. I helped little old ladies across the street, and I joined the Boy Scouts of America. No. You don't have anything to offer God. Now, they went, now, the Pharisee went to the temple complex to pray. Why? Because the Jews had a notion that prayers were more likely to be heard in a temple or a synagogue rather than a private place. Now, that attitude is everywhere. How many times do you see in the movies people go into a church to pray when they feel real penitent for what they've done? They feel like they're close to God, the holy sanctuary. That's just absolute nonsense. You can pray to God anywhere in the middle of a storm on a boat or whatever. You don't have to be in a temple to pray. And notice the tax collector stood far off. <laughs> Probably because the Pharisee wasn't going to let the tax collector get close to him. It could be the tax collector knew the Pharisee would resent him if he got close, so he stood far off. He knew his place, in other words. This is according to John Gill and Adam Clark. Or he could have been in the court of Gentiles. The Pharisees were in the court of Israelites. He the tax collector felt so unrighteous that he would not approach the Holy of Holies in that closer court of the, of the Israelites. It doesn't say whether the tax collector was a Gentile or was he a Jew. It doesn't really matter. He was standing far off because he didn't feel holy enough to get close to the Holy of Holies where God was. But he had a great attitude. He knew that the wrath of God was on him. So he says, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. Now, this idea of the wrath of God being on something, this is obviously scriptural, but of course, since the American Evangelical Church doesn't like to be scriptural and cannot talk about the wrath of God, let me tell you something, folks. The wrath of God is on everybody who is not a believer. We were enemies of God. His wrath, this is all in the book of Romans, after we get saved, where his wrath is taken away. It's appeased, it's propitiated, and then we become friends of God instead of enemies of God. That's just basic Christian doctrine. You know, the same Christian doctrine that 99% of evangelicals don't know anything about because they spend less than five minutes a day reading their Bible. But no, that, that tax collector, he knew the wrath of God was on him. Verse 14, I tell you, this one, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, just as if he had never sinned, rather than the other. So self-righteousness does not get you justified before God. It does not make you clean. Jesus continues, everyone, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a proverb. Jesus used it a lot. There's a lot of truth to it, of course. We humble ourselves before God, and he will lift you up at the proper time. I don't even think that needs an application. I think anybody will know that in their life. The more humble they are, the safer they are, the more blessed they are. One last point. Notice that the tax collector would not even raise his eyes to heaven. He couldn't look at God because he knew that God was angry with him. But he wanted to know God. He wanted to have his sins taken away. I'm telling you, that's the sinner walking down the sawdust, the sawdust trail. 
The sinner who knows repentance. The sinner who knows what it means to be forgiven by God. That is how Christianity is going to win. That's the only way. It's not for the idiotic social justice warriors. It's not through, it's not through programs. It's not through fancy choirs. It's not through fancy printing presses. It's if we hold to the basic message that we are sinners subject to the wrath of God and Jesus can take that wrath off of our shoulders and wipe our sins clean. If we keep preaching that, there's no way we're going to lose. Folks, that's the end of Matthew 18, 1 through 14. In our next audio, we'll start with verse 15 and we will look at Jesus and the children. We will look at the rich young ruler and the parable of the vineyard as Jesus continues his Perean ministry in preparation for his crucifixion and resurrection. I hope you enjoy this audio.